3 million whites surrounded by 18 million blacks. Listen, we built this country. Every town, every factory, every farm, mine and Christian church. And I protect it. And that's the way it's going to stay. Because no Zulu 20 years out of a tree is ever going to shove 50 cents in my hand and tell me there's a freighter in Cape Town Harbour waiting to ship me out of the land I built. All righty? Take your girlie to the movies if you can't make love at home. There's no little brother there who always squeals. You can do an awful lot in seven reels. Hello and welcome to Paleo Similar Podcast 183. My name's Terry Frost and this time around we've got a couple of very different movies. Uh, the first one is from 1956-1957 and it is Roger Vadim's And God Created Woman starring Brigitte Bardot, Kurt Jurgens, uh, Jean-Louis Trittignon and Christian Marquand. Uh, then we move on to 1975 and take a look at uh, a thriller with an apartheid theme, and that is The Wilby Conspiracy, which stars Michael Caine, Sidney Poitier, and Nicole Williamson. Very different movies, as I said, but uh, both of them interesting. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way, and we'll start the show. Paleo Cinema Podcast appears every two weeks. It's a podcast of classic film appreciation. The rules are pretty easy to remember. Each episode has to talk about two movies in it, and the movies have to be over 20 years old. Apart from that, they can be of any genre. Podcasts thrive on feedback, so you can send emails or MP3 voicemails to cultguru at gmail.com. That's K-U-L-T-G-U-R-U. You can go over to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook or take a look at paleo-cinema.blogspot.com iTunes reviews are also welcome. To support the podcast financially, you can head over to patreon.com slash paleocinema. Well, I'd like to acknowledge the Korong Jung Baluk and Mapiang Baluk people, the traditional owners of the land on which I'm recording the podcast, and pay my respects to their elders, both past and present. This podcast may contain adult words and concepts, so if you play it with small children around, expect to answer some uncomfortable questions later. I'm going to start the podcast with a shout out to one of the best friends of the podcast that we have, our friend Rich Chamberlain in uh, Kansas. Uh, All the very best, Rich. I am sorry for your loss and I um, hope that podcasts can help you through that. Uh, Take care, mate, and our thoughts are with you. And and now on to the podcast. Uh, I like these two movies that we've got this time around. They're very different, but one of them I've wanted to do for a very long time on the podcast and the other I only saw for the first time today. So it's a um, combination of fresh and stale I suppose this time around and I'm playing with things again. If you hear noises in the background when the podcast is on, um, that's me fidgeting with things. I'm a fidgeter and I'll tend to find something on the desk and click it or flick it or play with it in some ways and I did say on the desk and not under the desk by the way um, yeah so we've got um, And God Created Woman Roger Vadim's first directed movie starring his then wife Brigitte Bardot very good film in some ways and uh, there are aspects to it that play differently in the 21st century than they did in the 1950s and I'm going to talk about that a little bit and then we do The Wilby Conspiracy a movie set in South Africa um, starring Michael Caine, uh, Prunella G, Sidney Poitier, and Nicole Williamson stealing the whole movie. Um, really good film. Haven't seen it for a while, but um, I really like it for a number of reasons. And it kind of works in and has a, a bit of a kind of boldness about it that a lot of other people in cinema stayed away from in the 1970s in particular. But, um, yeah, what have I been watching? Let's get on with what I have been watching. I binged watch the second season of Daredevil on Netflix and got it finished before any of my Facebook friends, of whom there are 777. But I'll just just step aside for a second and say, I want to get to 1,000 by the end of the year. So if anybody was thinking about friending me up on Facebook, do it, because I'm going to be a size queen about this one, and I'd like to get to 1,000 friends by the end of the year. Um, it's just one of those kind of vague and, and not really meaningful goalposts to kind of get past. But, um, yeah, so if you want to, please do it. But, yeah, um, I, I watched 
as I said, I watched Daredevil. And the second season's, I don't think, quite as strong as the first one. It does have some very, very fine acting, in, particularly by John Bernthal playing the Punisher, a.k.a. Frank Castle. I think he really nails it nicely. I think the acting owes a little bit to De Niro and Taxi Driver, but takes it off in its own direction really well. Um, there are always with actors there are kind of influences and I think that's one of the influences that John Bernthal takes well has for this particular role but I, I think it's very much his own role and it was always a pleasure to see him on the screen during the 13 episodes I watched since Friday and I'm recording this on Sunday. So, um, yeah, I, I recommend it. I, I do like Daredevil. I think the weakest link sometimes is Charlie Cox playing Daredevil, but um, it's a little hard to engage an audience when you're playing a blind person to some extent because you're not really looking at anything. There's a kind of nebulosity to the kind of visual links that people have in movies. See, not having a main character that doesn't, focus his eyes on anything can be an alienating thing and I've noticed that a little bit with the second season of Daredevil it makes it a little harder to engage with the character even though the voice is good and the acting is fine that kind of lack of visual references makes a slight kind of distance between the audience and the actor which of course is innate to the role you can't play Matt Murdock and have some have them retcon him to be sighted but um, it's, a, it's a really slightly odd thing there, and I only noticed it watching this particular season. I'll continue to binge-watch Marvel stuff. I enjoy doing it, and it, it keeps me from annoying Sally on weekends when that happens, so she's quite pleased with it as well. She gets the Xbox. I get to watch Netflix. Everybody's happy in the household. Um, yeah, so what else have I been watching? Not a hell of a lot. I've had a very busy week, but I did see The Martian. The Ridley Scott movie with Matt Damon and uh, Jessica Chastain, Jeff Daniels, and very good ensemble cast. I did that for the ABC radio gig. Uh, Mick Murdoch and I were doing it at one more time while Liz is on holidays. And we both enjoyed um, talking about it. Mick hadn't seen the film, so I had to, in a slight way, do the heavy lifting, which is perfectly fine because he does four or five hours of radio a night. Having me do the heavy lifting for a, a short period of time is probably a relief to the guy. But uh, I like the film. I'm going to do it on a future Martian Drive-In podcast. I'm going to match it up with Robinson Crusoe on Mars and compare and contrast those two films. Looking forward to doing that. It'll be a bit of fun, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not really a fan of Ridley Scott's um, oeuvre in a lot of ways, but I think this works, and I'm, as I said, I'm not going to talk very much about it, because I'm saving all of that juice for MDIP when it um, comes up, and I'm going to try to pre-record some podcasts as well. Sally and I are going to spend a week in Sydney in April. And I'm going to front load with a few uh, up my sleeve. It's not something I normally do. It's usually last minute shit. I've got to get the podcast done. Which movies am I going to watch? What am I going to say about them? Boom. That kind of thing. But I'm going to actually get ahead a little bit on this one. And have a couple stacked up so that the pressure is off in some ways. And it's a delightful pressure in a lot of ways. I enjoy talking about the movies. I enjoy finding... I even enjoy the thrill of not knowing which movie I'm going to do right up until the last minute. There's a kind of um, adrenaline I get from doing that. But I'm going to get a couple of um, casts up. I'll give you a, a bit of a clue about what I'm going to talk about in some of them. As I said, I'm going to do The Martian and uh, Robinson Crusoe on Mars. I'm also going to, for Martian Drive-In, be doing The Hypnotic Eye, and I'm going to find another movie to match that with. And for Paleo Cinema, I want to do Last Tango in Paris and um, a couple of other kind of transgressive sort of films. And, and, and God Created Woman is definitely part of that kind of theme in the podcast. So I'm going to be um, doing a lot of podcasting over Easter. I've got a couple of days when I've got uh, family commitments over Easter and friend commitments. But I've also got a couple of days up my sleeve there, so I'm going to um, hit the microphone pretty hard, and I'm looking forward to doing that. Uh, on a personal note, what one of the things that helps me with this, of course, is the fact that I've got a CPAP machine for my sleep apnea. 
and I'm sleeping solidly for seven or eight hours a night now, which I wasn't in the past two years. And I think it, the podcasts have suffered for it. And having that alertness now and that focus that I have from getting a decent night's sleep pretty much every night really helps with this. And it's, um, it feels good too. I, I really enjoy the feeling of clarity that I get from getting a decent night's sleep when for a number of years I hadn't. So if you're not sure and your partner says you snore or even random strangers asleep with say you snore, get checked out, see if you need to get some kind of apnea treatment and uh, definitely do it. It does improve the quality of life. But um, anyway, on to the movies. I'm going to do these in reverse chronological order for the simple reason that um, I want to. Uh, and I want to talk about the Will Be Conspiracy first. At the start of the podcast, you heard a little bit of Nicole Williamson as Captain Horn, the um, security man from the Bureau of State Security in South Africa um, in the Will Be Conspiracy, a 1970 film directed by Ralph Nelson starring Michael Caine, Nicole Williamson, Sidney Poitier and Prunella Gee. It's also got a young Rutger Hauer in it which is kind of cool in his first English language role. Poitier, Caine, together, a will-be conspiracy. Either the cuffs come off tonight, or the hands tomorrow. Sidney Poitier, the rebel. He was guilty of treason, yet they let him go free. The state is withdrawing its case. That was the start of the Wilby conspiracy. You've no chance without him, and he's no chance without you. Michael Caine, the outsider. Almighty God! What am I doing here? He didn't want to get involved. I don't know whether to shoot you or call the police. You'd better shoot me. Uh, I'm neutral. Until they made him a part of the Wilby conspiracy. I'll play the hero with my life! Nicole Williamson, a policeman, a patriot. I want to get close up, see if I stink of fear. He was behind the Wilby conspiracy. An adventure across 900 miles of escape and survival. Thank you, Romeo. You're boxed in. Follow instructions. Drop down fast and go through that slot. You're suicidal. Right. You're all suicidal. A treasure hunt that plunges deep into the earth. A tangled web of crosses. This is the man you asked me to trust. You made a deal with the police. I've got a right to know. And double crosses. Your friends may call you a traitor, but I call you patriot. An explosion of action, danger, and excitement. Now! Okay, so The Will Be Conspiracy is a 1975 action thriller with political overtones. It was directed by Ralph Nelson, a kind of yeah, journeyman director who did at least one episode of The Twilight Zone. He directed the movie version of Flowers for Algernon, known as Charlie with Cliff Robertson, and also uh, the television and film versions of Rod Serling's Requiem for a Heavyweight, along with a few other things like Duel at Diablo, which is a good western I really should do for a future podcast, uh, Soldier Blue, The Wrath of God, Embryo, and... Um, a Hero Ain't Nothing But a Sandwich, which I'm going to click on just because I want to find out what it is. Um, it's got Cicely Tyson, Paul Winfield, Larry B. Scott, so it might be worth checking out for future podcasts. But I'm not going to digress any further than that. The cast of this film is very, very good. Um, we've got Michael Caine, of course. We have Sidney Poitier kind of rehashing in a different context his role from The Defiant Ones. We have Nicole Williamson as um, Horn, Major Horn, the Bureau of State Security security guy. Prunella G playing Rina Van Niekerk, who is a um, human rights lawyer. 
Say Jaffrey, a very well-respected Indian actor, playing Mukherjee, a dentist, and Persis Kambata, whom people remember most from the first Star Trek movie, playing Persis, who is the um, assistant to uh, Say Jaffrey's dentist. So I found a very good praise of this movie, which is actually on Wikipedia. And I'm going to read it in full. An apartheid era South Africa, Jacques Twala, played by Sidney Poitier, a black revolutionary who has served time on Robben Island, is freed by Rina van Niekerk, Brunelagi, his Afrikaner defence attorney, because he would be a victim of retroactive legislation. Rina, estranged from her husband Blaine, Rukahawa, is having a relationship with an English mining engineer, Jim Keogh, Michael Caine, who attends Shaq's trial. Surprised by the verdict, Rina, Jim and Shaq go off to her celebrate at her house. They are stopped by the South African police who are conducting identity document checks and arresting everyone who doesn't have their papers on them. As Shaq has only just been released from prison, he will not receive his papers until the next day. The police constable and Shaq antagonise each other, as leading to Shaq being handcuffed and arrested, when Rina attempts to pull the constable off Shaq, the policeman hits her, knocking her to the ground. Jim assaults and knocks out the constable, making the, all three of them fugitives. At police headquarters, an SAP brigadier, Patrick Allen, whom you heard in the clip at the start of the podcast, is criticised by Major Horn, Nicole Williamson, of the South African Bureau of State Security for not only arresting Shaq, but continuing with their random identity checks and arrests that have infuriated world opinion. The three fugitives are followed and monitored by Boss to lead them to discover their escape route to Botswana and its facilitators, two Indian dentists. Uh, there's also a stash of uncut dumbs being used to fund the African National Congress and the um, Boss uh, want him to lead, want the three to lead them to the leader of the African National Congress, a man called Wilby, played by Joe DeGraff. So we've got Sydney Poitier, Michael Caine, Nicole Williamson, Prinella G, Shane Jeffrey, Percy Kambata, Rutger Hauer, Patrick Allen, and Joe DeGraft as Wilby Zappa. Now, Joe DeGraft, I'll just mention this because I found it and I found it very cool. Very well respected Ghanaian actor. He uh, In Ghana, he did a lot of Shakespeare productions and things like that. He actually has a crater on the planet Mercury named after him. DeGraft. So that's pretty cool. You must be doing something right if somebody names a fucking crater on a planet after you. And Joe DeGraff got one <laughs> named after him. But anyway, um, as I said, it's a good um, action drama. Uh, wasn't filmed in South Africa for fairly obvious reasons. It was actually filmed in Kenya. And Joma Kenyatta, the um, Prime Minister of Kenya, asked Sidney Poitier specifically to film in their country regarding this one. Uh, and it does, I mean, I'm, I haven't been to South Africa or Kenya, so I'm not sure how well Kenya substitutes for South Africa, but um, there, there was no way they were going to film this movie in South Africa. I mean, there were Hollywood films that were filmed in South Africa during apartheid. The most common one I know of is a remake of Pick Up on South Street, which had James Brolin in it, I think, called The Cape Town Affair, which is um, not a very good film, but it's interesting to watch and compare and contrast that film to Pick Up on South Street, the wonderful Sam Fuller movie of the early 1950s. But um, just, see, I digress, I keep digressing, but what the hell, I'm going to keep doing it, and there's probably not a lot can be done to stop me. I've got a few good bits of trivia about this film as well, one of which is the fact that Sidney Poitier and Michael Caine were almost killed during the making of the film. They were bouncing around Kenya in a jeep in a scene toward the end of the film, and there was a big 90-pound Aeroflex camera mounted on the bonnet. The windscreen wasn't there so that it filmed well, and so they go galloping around in this jeep and a bolt breaks loose and the 90 pound Aeroflex camera smashes in between Michael Caine and Sidney Poitier throwing bits of camera and all sorts of other shit everywhere and, you know, if it had hit one of them it would have killed them without a doubt but they, um, the filming stopped of course they had to wait while a new Aeroflex camera was shipped in from England um, and the two actors were quite lucky to be alive the only other thing I've got on this one which is 
kind of shows Michael Caine not in his best light was he, in an interview, he did um, criticise Pranilla G, um, saying that uh, Pranilla has a long way to go and I don't think she has started on the journey yet. So he kind of dissed one of his co-stars. It's something you wouldn't get away with now, but with social media the way it is. But Michael Caine at the time did get away with it. And I was thinking about that. You know, Prinelogy, on you know, good honest actor. She's had a long career. She was in Coronation Street, I think it is, for a very long time. And, yeah, she, she did a pretty good job. But one of the problems with the role, of course, is a problem with a lot of female roles in a lot of action films over a lot of decades. It's underwritten a lot more than the male roles are. She's just there basically... Yes, she's important as the lawyer and as a way of convincing Keo, the Michael Caine character, to take the correct action. But it's a very underwritten role. They didn't give her a lot to work with in that film. And because she's working as, as a fairly minor English actor against a couple of big stars, she couldn't really push to say, hey, listen, give me more to do. You know, I want to flesh this character out. Wasn't a lot to do there. And I think it was quite unkind of Michael Caine to say that at the time. But he he wanted to do the film very much because he was um, very anti-apartheid. He had married a woman of colour several years before. And in fact, he's still married to his wife, Shakira, um, all these years later. But um, he had strong and, and fairly obvious feelings about apartheid in South Africa and was quite anxious to do... Uh, a movie based on it. And the interesting thing, too, is there weren't any other films doing this. South Africa and South African politics was something that particularly uh, US films was avoiding like the plague. Yes, there were the, in England and Australia, there were the protests whenever the Springboks rugby teams toured. There were economic sanctions against South Africa for a long time before it finally came to pass that democracy hit the country. Uh, But as far as movie versions of what was actually going on there, they were extremely thin on the ground. And this is, I mean, please tell me if you can think of any other ones, but I can't really think of any others, particularly in an action-adventure context that were addressing apartheid in South Africa any time around this film. And all credit to the filmmakers for doing that. Now, this all hinges, of course, on the bad guy. And the bad guy in this case is Major Horn, played by Nicole Williamson. Williamson's a fantastic actor. I haven't seen Williamson be bad. I've seen him be over the top, but he's always mesmerising as an actor. Very, very talented. Uh, In fact, Kenneth Tynan did a long essay about Nicole Williamson, which is worth reading if you can get a hold of it. In fact, I think I see the book in which that essay appears, if I can just make a long arm and reach out to grab it. And I'm just going to take a look at it. But um, Tynan's essay was Nicole Williamson, The Road to the White House, where um, he was actually going to the White House, uh, you know, how certain stars were entertained at the White House. He was going to be doing a whole bunch of stuff at the White House for Richard Nixon and Kenneth Tynan, the great essayist and critic, tagged along with him and wrote a very good kind of personality piece about Nicole Williamson, about his kind of insecurities, about his drinking and and a number of other things. And It's a a really good essay. It's in a book which is out of print called The Sound of Two Hands Clapping which has got a number of great essays in it. I'll just give you an idea of what else is in there, which is kind of cool. And again, I'm digressing, but what the hell. Um, There's a good essay about Lenny Bruce. There's one about Noel Coward. There's one about Eric Morecambe. One about Ethel Merman. One about Marlene Dietrich. One about Polanski, which is very good. And one about a bullfighter called Antonio Ononez. And there are some other essays about various other subjects. And Tynan was always a fascinating writer. And he brought to life for me Nicole Williamson as a person and as an actor. Uh, Williamson did a very well-regarded Hamlet. He played Sherlock Holmes in The 7% Solution. He'd been in any number of films. But, uh, yeah, he, he was a man who had his demons uh, and eventually came to terms with him. He, he died a number of years ago, but he dealt with the alcoholism. He dealt with uh, some mental health issues. 
and was really at a good place at the time he died as far as his psychological and, well, if not physical health, were concerned. And I like Williamson a lot in this particular because he, even though he's playing a kind of baddie, in, in a sense he's playing a 1970s Nazi, we'll be honest about that. He's racist, he's um, focused, he's bigoted, he's sadistic, he's nasty. And the justification for that, and he gets a few different speeches in it, is to preserve the South Africa that he knows and loves, the white South Africa. He has that kind of flawed view that white people built the country when in fact it was built with a lot of slave labour and a lot of cruelty and it was stolen from other people. But um, he's very, as as a clip at the start of the film shows, he's very focused on the idea of white people as bringers of civilization to colonial countries, which is something which is not just um, part of South Africa's history. It was here in Australia. I'm sure it was in America. It's in any kind of country where Europeans came and took the land from other races. And Williamson is quite striking as um, Horn. The unashamed racism and, and the kind of negativity and the almost slave owner mentality of apartheid South Africa really is kind of impersonalised by Williamson's role in this film. And Williamson, of course, was an old, was a lefty himself. He, even though he did go to the White House at the behest of Richard Nixon, he um, his, his heart was in the right place and pl- in playing um, an apartheid-era intelligence officer in South Africa, he wanted to kind of outline the, the worldview of those people in a way that made audiences at the time understand how bad that was. And in another digression, I did a bit of uh, research about the Bureau of State Security in South Africa, which has got the best acronym ever, even though it wasn't the official acronym. The acronym of BOSS was really kind of a pointed way of saying it, even though in Afrikaans it's, you know, it doesn't actually have that same acronym. Um, the organisational structure of Bureau of State Security was really kind of scary as well. There are a whole bunch of different departments in it, one of which was subversion, another was counter-espionage, political and economic espionage, military intelligence administration, national evaluation, research and special studies. Um, now, there were a whole bunch of scandals not too long after the Wilby conspiracy was made in the Bureau of State Security. Um, Hedrick Vandenberg re- resigned as head of it in June 1978. And the Bureau of State Security, for mostly PR reasons, was renamed the Department of National Security, or, or DONS, in September 1978. Um, Vorster, the Prime Minister at the time, had resigned, and um, P.W. Bota. Um, was appointed as a new Prime Minister and he did a great big kind of almost a Royal Commission on the Bureau of State Security and the way it operates. Um, he, There was a lot of political power in the uh, Bureau of State Security as is shown in the Wilby Conspiracy. And both uh, um, fought against that. He um, really did kind of um, investigate and disassemble the um, intelligence gathering abilities and, and the um, lack of checks and balances on the Bureau of State Security. In October 1978, he broke it up into several different areas and um, there was a, a big concern about it being an alternative military in a sense. And even though it was supposed to work along with the South African military, it was very much um, a law unto itself. And in the 6th of February 1980, the Bureau of State Security was disbanded and restructured into um, another organisation. And then, of course, Nelson Mandela was freed. South Africa became democratic in an almost bloodless change of the power balances in that country. But the Bureau of State Security at the time was monstrous. They killed Steve Biko. In um, they were operating basically as in the same way that the Tonton Bakut were 
in Haiti. They were a law unto themselves. They could do pretty much anything they liked. People disappeared. People were tortured. People were killed. People were in prison for decades. And all in the name of essentially white supremacy and the fear of what would happen should black Africans, black South Africans, gain any power in their own country. Very, very nasty organisation, and this movie is the only Hollywood film that addresses that. Um, and leaving aside the political aspects of it, it's a good action thriller as well. It's got some great locations in um, Kenya, which uh, work to you know, serve the film well. It doesn't do that thing that a lot of African movies do, where you see lions and giraffes and um, springboks and impalas and all that kind of thing leaping across the veldt. None of that kind of thing. They keep it very focused and, and very honed in on the impact that the Bureau of State Security has on these people. Um, Prunella G's character is interrogated by them. They do body cavity searches multiple times on her. They really kind of um, are nasty pricks. They break into her apartment when her and Keo are having a bath together and um, Horn and his sidekick basically threatened to kill them in the bathtub by dropping a hairdryer into it to get them to do what they want. Uh, it's And the thing is that none of this is an exaggeration. This is exactly the kind of kind of bully boy standover merchant tactics that the Bureau of State Security was known for in South Africa. All you've got to do is, a, is kind of cursory is Google search on them. And you'll find out exactly what kind of an organisation uh, the Bureau of State Security was. And to have that as the villain makes things really interesting as well. Um, they, one of the things they do in an interesting way is show a multicultural South Africa. Not only do you have Shaq Twala and Wilby Zaba's uh, Bantu culture, and in fact there's one point where a village of Bantu people hide the vehicle that the three are escaping in underneath one of their tents, one of their kind of huts in a very interesting way. And the way that Horn then interrogates the chief of the village is another point at which the film really addresses that kind of nasty, derogatory, ugly side of apartheid. And there aren't any ugly sides of apartheid, let's be honest. But Williamson um, really does bring his A-game to this role. He really does give us a, a unique villain in Horn. And in doing so, steals the movie away from Michael Caine, and and this is yeah, Michael Caine's not really bringing his A game to it. There's a lot of shouting. There's a lot of kind of um, histrionic stuff that Michael Caine does, but it's not among his best roles. It really doesn't. Um, yeah, yeah, it's an action adventure film to a certain extent, and but um, Caine was at that period of time where he'd had some financial reverses. There were some people who ripped him off uh, financially and he was doing a lot of films to kind of recoup those finances. He'd worked for 20-odd years as an actor and was suddenly back at square one and did a lot of kind of a check cashing in order to you know, keep his family fed and housed and, and to kind of keep his career going in a meaningful way and this is one of the films he made at that time and his head may not have been in the best space for um, being kind to his co-actors yeah, at the time. I'm reading Raising Cain, the um, biography, the authorised biography by William Hall which is probably not the definitive biography on Cain and, and kind of ends in the early 1980s but um, it's, it's a kind of a useful reference book. It's interesting that all the movies that I do for the podcast give very little, um, get a page or so in this book, and all the movies that I don't particularly want to do in the podcast get multiple pages in the book. But that's the way it goes when you're doing research for these things. It really um, is hit and miss as far as um, the, you know, the information that you can glean from biographies, particularly authorised biographies, which in the 1980s were in some ways, puff pieces, and uh, anything really good and juicy got left out of them. Nonetheless, um, and Sidney Poitier is pretty good. His accent's pretty good um, as Jacques Twala. 
and that sense of outrage and that kind of simmering anger that he has works well. But again, this is another one of the roles that's underwritten. He does get a couple of set-piece speeches, which are quite good. But um, Michael Caine is, from the way the movie is slanted, the star of the piece. And because he's not bringing his own game there, and because Shaq Twala is an underwritten role, all Sidney Poitier gets to do is kind of have a few arch comments to make and a couple of speech set pieces. It really does underserve him as, in a sense, the focal point of the Wilby conspiracy. Nonetheless, it's a joy to watch Nicole Williamson in this film. The kind of, you know, the anger and confidence and nastiness and kind of fucked up worldview of Major Horn makes this fascinating. And when he's talking about black people coming down from trees decades ago and all that kind of thing, uh, it really shows that kind of, apart from anything else, the thin grasp of history that um, apartheid era white South Africans in some cases had. And I'm not trying to tar a whole people with the same brush. Whereas if you look at the history of Africa way back to the Middle Ages and before, there are a whole bunch of civilizations there that were doing fantastically well, better than Europe. But unfortunately, they ended up getting gutted by European climate change as the Sahara dried up and all sorts of other shit like that. But anyway, I'm going to wrap it up for The Wilby Conspiracy. Good little thriller. It's got its heart in the right place. It's um, historically important for that reason. Uh, it was doing what it did at a time when nobody else was, at least in cinema. And it's a bloody good adventure flick. There's some very tense moments in it. Uh, but it does send a very strong message as well, which is kind of good. Anyway, I'm going to take another break now. And when I get back, it's going to be Bridget Bardu, Kurt Jurgens, Jean-Louis Tritignon, and Christian Marquand in Roger Vadim's And God Created Woman. Mon cœur éclate Il a envie de jouer Et de s'éparpiller En cent mille folies Mon cœur explose De trop vouloir aimer J'ai envie de chanter Pour un non, pour un oui Je patifole Je fais des cabrioles je décolle légèrement du sol J'entends des cloches qui teintent et qui ricochent Dans ma cabane Mon cœur s'embrase comme un soir de Saint-Jean Sur les sommets ardents de l'été triomphant Emporté par le temps Rigole avec la lune Et chante avec le vent Mon cœur éclate De joie Adieu les enfants And God created a woman in the French, it is Adieu Créer la Femme, um, was pretty much the breakout movie for um, Brigitte Bardot. She'd been married a few years earlier to Roger Vadim, who directed her in this film. And Vadim's one of those guys, I've actually started reading his memoirs, called Bardot, Deneuve and Fonda, after the three women he married, three of the four women he married, Brigitte Bardot, Catherine Deneuve and Jane Fonda. This guy um, had a gift for marrying some of the most beautiful women in cinema. And um, in and God Created Woman, which I picked up for five bucks at a shop that sells remainder videos. And uh, it's worth it for me. Uh, it's a really cool film. It was filmed and is set in Saint-Tropez on the Côte d'Azur. And at the time... Saint-Tropez was a, a kind of a village. They had fishing boats there and there were some cafes and people came down for the summer occasionally, but it wasn't what it is now. And if you go to Google Maps and look up the locations of 
and God Created Woman, which I recommend. This is one of the things you could do if you like a film a lot, and it's got a lot of location shooting. If you go into IMDb, it'll often give you the exact addresses of the locations. So what you can do is paste those into Google Maps and see what those locations look like now. Now, in this film, they've got a number of them along the waterfront um, in Saint-Tropez, and it's very, very different. And this is the movie that made Saint-Tropez's name after And God Created Woman came out. People wanted to go there, and it became the enormous tourist destination now, where once there were fishing boats along the waterfront, there are now mega yachts. If you have a look at um, the waterfront in Saint-Tropez on Google Maps, it is basically kilometre after kilometre of super yachts. It's a rich man's playground, and um, in this film, it's definitely not. There are working-class people who can afford to live there, and um, yeah, it's, it's a very different place, though. A lot of the buildings are the same, which is kind of nice. The French tend to do that. They don't rip down buildings and put up new ones. They make buildings that last. The Eiffel Tower, for instance, was only supposed to last the duration of the Great Exhibition in France in the 1880s. But um, to, I'm dithering and digressing today. Um, but this film is, the storyline's fairly basic, but I found it quite interesting. Let's see what we've got. Um, Juliette Brigitte Bardot is an 18-year-old orphan with a high level of sexual energy. This is from Wikipedia. She makes no effort to restrain her natural sensuality, lying nude in her yard, habitually kicking her shoes off and walking around barefoot, and disregarding many societal restraints and the opinions of others. These factors cause a stir and attract the attentions of most of the men around her. Her first suitor is a much older and wealthy Eric Carradine, played by Kurt Jürgens. He wants to build a new casino in town, but his plans are blocked by a small shipyard on a stretch of land which he needs for the development. That shipyard is owned by the Tardieu family. Antoine, the eldest Tardieu son, Christian Marquon, returns home for the weekend to discuss the situation, and Juliet is waiting for him to take her away with him. His intentions are short-term, and he spurns her and leaves by leaving town without her. Tiring of her antics, Juliet's guardians threaten to send her back to the orphanage. To keep her in town, Carradine pleads with Antoine to marry her, which he laughs off, but his naive younger brother Michel, Jean-Louis Trintignant, secretly in love with Juliet, rises to the challenge and proposes. Despite being in love with her older brother, she accepts. When Antoine is contracted to return home for good, the trouble starts for the newlyweds. In a huff, Juliet takes off in a boat belonging to the family, gets in trouble and has to be saved by Antoine. The pair are washed up on a wild beach and make love. Juliet begins acting bizarrely. She takes to her bed, claiming to have a fever. She confesses to Michelle's little brother Christian, Georges Pouljouli, about her fling with Antoine on the beach. Uh, the mother hears about this, tells Michelle when he comes home and advises her to kick Juliet, advises him to kick Juliet out of the house. Michelle goes to their room to talk with Juliet, but she's gone off to a bar to drink and dance. And then things get even more interesting. So it's a pretty simple story. But um, the, there's a few really cool things about it. The first one is the relationship between Eric Carradine, played by Kurt Jurgens, and Juliet. Um, even though um, Carradine, Kurt Jurgens, is a kind of roué, he's an older guy, he's very wealthy, he has a number of businesses in the Saint-Tropez area and wants to get this casino going along the waterfront. He's almost kind of avuncular to her. Yes, he wouldn't mind um, having an affair with her, but he's not emotionally invested in it at all. He's kind of kind to her and gentle, and he promised her he'd bring her a car and brings her a toy car instead, which um, kind of amuses her. Um, he, he's not pursuing in any heavy way the idea of an affair with Juliet. Uh, which makes for quite in yeah. You know, there's an arc through Carradine's own story during the movie, where he becomes almost a father confessor to her. When um, her husband's away, she tends to go down to cafes and um, plays the jukebox. That song by uh, Gilbert Bacot that I played earlier is one of the songs that Juliet plays in the jukebox in the cafe along the waterfront in Saint-Tropez when she's with um, Carradine. 
So I'm going to play another one of the songs that she plays at the end of the podcast because I, I kind of like French pop songs from the 1950s and I'm just going to run with that. Uh, and, you know, that, that kind of a, a relationship is interesting. Jürgen's, we, we see him on his yacht. He's got a yacht, of course, along the waterfront, which is nothing like the yachts that are along the waterfront at Saint-Tropez now. Um, and, you know, he has affairs with other women. He has meetings with business partners and things like that. Um, the women he has, and the interesting thing is the one woman we see that he's having an affair with who is married is more age-appropriate for him. So there's kind of an implication, and maybe this is just me projecting, that he finds Juliet delightful. She's a wild, wanton, very beautiful, very graceful, totally sexually stunning woman. But he finds his lust for her to be slightly more abstract and maybe how young she is makes a difference. He talks a good game, but he never actually follows through on it, which is kind of an interesting dynamic there. Um, He doesn't try to force the issue. Were it an American film, there'd be that kind of point in time in that relationship when he would try to force himself upon her. But that's not the way it's played in Europe, and it's not the way Kurt Jürgens plays this. And he is quite likeable in, in the role, even though he is a bastard businessman, in a sense. And, um, yeah, it, it's he, he plays it very cool. He plays it philosophically. He's more interest, He's interested in her as a person, which makes it kind of interesting as well, where all of the young men around Saint-Tropez are very much interested in just basically nailing Juliet. He's interested in her as a person, which kind of shows a, a maturity on his part that these young guys don't have. For instance, when she um, is at a dance with Aunt Antoine, she goes into the ladies' room and overhears Antoine talking about her in the adjacent men's room and saying basically, yeah. She's just fun tonight. She's not a person to take seriously at all. I'm just going to sleep with her tonight. And that'll be that. And she then flees to um, Carradine's yacht as a way of kind of avoiding him. And um, she doesn't sleep with him that night. Let's just say that. Um, And that's kind of interesting. And the other the interesting thing about the film, well, there's a few interesting things, otherwise I wouldn't be talking about it in the podcast. Let me get my notes here, which I'm going to ruffle some pages while I get. The interesting thing is that she's in charge of who she is. She determines how she's going to live in society. She determines who she wants to be. She determines her own sexual pathway and won't be constrained by the threat of going to a Catholic orphanage. And in fact, one of the women from the orphanage comes and sees her where she works in a shop that sells magazines and newspapers and is quite cold and um, judgmental about the fact that um, Juliet is a free spirit. The interesting thing is that the people who most judge her are older women. There's the woman of the older couple with whom she's lodging, whose husband um, is in a wheelchair, and she's you know, quite nasty to her and um, threatened. Uh, Juliet has a few pets. She's got a bird, she's got um, a kitten, and she's got a rabbit. And the old lady, older lady threatens to um, cook her rabbit if she, when she goes back to the orphanage. So Juliet kind of has a way of dealing with that, which is quite touching and shows the fact that even though she is a very kind of, in some ways she's very adult and sensual and sexual, in other ways she is still a young girl. And there's a scene while she's waiting for a bus which kind of demonstrates that in a slightly amusing way. And that's where we get a cameo of Roger Vadim playing um, a friend of Antoine's who's on the bus. Michel, played by Jean-Louis Trintignant, um, is, is kind of unsure of himself. He loves the fact that he's got a, a kind of sexually hearty wife and she takes him up to the bedroom and bonks his brains out. He's living in the family home, which is probably not the best way for things to go, but they're, until they cut a business deal with Carradine, their finances are limited and their own little boat um, yard isn't doing very well. And so they're all living in the one house. And it becomes very aware to Antoine, who's kind of starts a sexual jealousy thing with Michelle, his younger brother, who 
um, is married to Juliet. Um, he's got the sexual jealousy thing going. The even younger brother is kind of fascinated with the whole thing and fascinated with her and um, is kind of gormless when it comes to talking about the relationship between Michelle and Juliet with Antoine. And I'm getting all these names down really well. I'm quite pleased with that. Um, and, and, you know, there, there's a, that kind of family dynamic there which plays very interestingly. But uh, there comes a point where, because she's had this affair on the beach with Antoine, Juliet just doesn't know how to handle it. She she do, wants to be a good wife, but she's got this wild side to herself. She um, is hated by his family. And she's still very young and kind of hasn't got her shit together. And so she goes to a cafe where tarts, as it says in the subtitles, hang out, drown, downs a few um, cognacs, and then she hears some jazz music playing from next door where there's a nightclub, and it's a whole bunch of mambo musicians who are rehearsing for a gig at the nightclub and um some of them are black guys some of them aren't black guys and she kind of wanders in to the um nightclub and starts dancing to the music which the guys kind of play up to because she's very beautiful very sexual and that leads to the climax of the film which i'm not going to spoil but um this movie at the time it came up blasted the fuck out of america and england in particular it was deliberately made as a movie to kind of showcase the sensuality of Brigitte Bardot, which has got a lot in common, and particularly in that mambo scene in the nightclub that kind of acts as the centrepiece at the end of the film. It's very much like Gilda and Rita Hayworth. There's a, it's the same kind of earthiness and sexuality about it, and there are scenes where Vadim films her from the waist down so you can see her bare legs and you can see her hips rotating to the mambo music and things like that and they become almost a thing to themselves separate from her as a person which is kind of in one way alienating but in another way kind of the viewpoint of the male gaze they're looking at her legs and they're looking at her hips and the way that they're moving and they're thinking carnal thoughts about her so that's the way that Vadim films her in those scenes but anyway, um, the Legion of American Decency hated the film. There's a little bit of nudity, but it's all from the back, pretty much. It's all arse and back. Um, there's no topless scenes or anything like that. But for the time, in 1956, it, it was released in 1956 in Europe, 1957 in America. It was the height of, of kind of sexual decadence in cinema in the same way that Ecstasy with Hedy Labar was in the 1930s, though that had more nudity than And God Created Woman. Um, it was just yeah, a, a real smack, smack in the face to prudishness and conformity and the worldview of England and America in the 1950s and in Australia as well it was banned in Australia for a lot of years for that reason we had some of the worst censorship you could possibly imagine and it really was um yeah one of those taboo movies where only people in um film societies ever got to see it because they have to bring sneak in a print into the country and show it privately amongst themselves to see this movie but um, looking at it from a 21st century viewpoint, the film kind of, you know, in one sense it is guys lusting after a woman and her reaction to that. And in the other, it's the, it can be seen as a kind of prudish and repressed and very, very sexist society holding down a woman who's earthy and open and owns her own sexuality and that's one of the ways I looked at it when I was watching it because I went into it knowing yes it's a Brigitte Bardot kind of sex pot movie with Kurt Jurgens in it directed by Roger Vadim but I hadn't really done my homework before I saw the film and seeing it it's very it's almost and and this is kind of arguable it's probably going to piss off some of my feminist friends it's almost a feminist movie in a way because the way I read the film was very much approving of Juliet and the way she was because she was open about her own sexuality. She owned it. She wouldn't be slut-shamed by these people, even though it hurt her when they did it. 
and even when she hadn't necessarily done anything particularly wrong. There's a lot of slut shaming there, and there's that weird thing. Sal and I were having a conversation in the car today about this, before I even knew I was going to do the movie. And we were talking about how people slut shame women, but don't do the same thing to the men they sleep with at the time. And how fucked up that is, and how wrong that is, and how judgmental it is. When we know full well that it takes at least two to tango, three to lombarda. And um, the guys tend to get off with less social approbation than women do when... If a woman has multiple sex partners and is open about it and doesn't hide it and isn't particularly there to fulfill a, a traditional role... There are men and there are groups of society that are threatened by that. They see that as a threat to who they are and their worldview. And a lot of those people are women as well. Sal said, which I had to agree with, even though I do find it disheartening, women slut shame women way more than men do in a lot of ways. And that's kind of very fucked up. And there's a lot of that that goes on in this movie as well. It's one of those coincidences of timing that I was having that conversation, then I went and then I saw this film. I had it on disc and I saw it. And the themes kind of of the conversation and the movie overlapped. And um, yeah, and the fact that um, Juliet wouldn't be slut shamed and was kind of honest about herself, but still disappointed when she has the affair with Anton. And there's a strong attraction between them, even though she is kind of, does in a way, love Michelle. Um, that, you know, that, that the fact that she gave into that and didn't fulfill the traditional role is one of the things that makes her happy. And I think more than that, and more importantly than that, it's not that she, does, she doesn't fulfill the traditional role of a, a kind of chaste and um, monogamous wife. But the fact that she hurt Michelle in doing so is one of the reasons why she goes off the rail. She goes down to the bar, she gets drunk, and then starts this wild and sexual dance in the nightclub. Um, tempting, but calling to Michelle. Because he comes in and confronts her, along with Carradine, who's already there and sees her there. And Carradine knows what's going on and reads the expression on Juliet's face, which is challenging to Michelle, but also kind of yearning. She wants him to do something. She wants him to take her away from this place. But Michelle, until something drastic happens, doesn't have the strength of character to do that. Um, I, I don't think this is a major film. I think it's very important in as a kind of breakthrough film in portraying female sexuality in cinema. I think it's definitely that. And one of the things that I noticed, which is unusual for um, a film of the 1950s, is that when the kissing scenes are there, Bardot kisses back and is passionate and forward in kissing. She's not the kind of pliant and receptive receiver of passion. Once she's kissed, she will go back and get more because she wants it. And there's a kind of sensual aggression about the way she does that, which is quite different and quite interesting and quite sexually arousing and sensual in the way she does that. If you see the movie, just check that out because it's not something you'll see in any if or many other 1950s movies. That forthrightness about passion by a woman it's not just kind of yeah you know, yielding to male desire it's having your own desire and actively reaching out for to fulfill it and that makes it much more exciting than the way hollywood does it where women are reluctant to express passion and then only do so in the softest of terms when they do um give vent to their passions but, uh, yeah, and God Created Women, I think it's a good $5 buy for me. I really did enjoy the film. It's, um, it's a movie that I'd heard a lot about before I saw it. And mostly what you hear isn't the movie itself, but is about the societal reaction to the movie and the way that particularly conservative people reacted to it at the time and tried to 
shut it down and tried to censor it and tried to cut the guts out of it. That forthrightness about female sexuality really did scare the fuck out of people at the time. And of course, there are people these days, we can say the same about particularly in political realms, where the sexuality of others becomes a threat to the comfort one feels in one's own comfort zone. Uh, we've got that at the moment. There's a project in Australia called Safe Schools, which is about bullying, but it's also about providing a safe space and providing information to gay, transgendered and intersex teenagers and, and students. And it's worked tremendously well for a lot of years, but some conservative backbenchers in the um, Conservative Party in Australia are kicking up a fuss about it at the moment and have basically cut the guts out of the program because of those gay, lesbian, bi, trans and intersex parts of that particular um, program in schools. The state government where I am, Daniel Andrews' Victorian state government, has said to the federal government, pretty much, fuck you, we are funding it ourselves the way it is. We're going to get state funding and we will fund this because it's helping kids, it's stopping suicides, it's stopping suicide attempts, it's stopping suicidal ideation by kids and the Conservatives are chucking a fuss about it. So this is the same dynamic that we had over half a century ago and Bridget Bardot is now 81 years old. We had over a half a century ago with And God Created a Woman portrayals of open sexuality when it isn't by a straight male threaten some parts of our society and that's one of the reasons why this film was so transgressive at the time it was honest about things that people just didn't want honesty about and for that reason the film is important but anyway that's about it for the movie part of the podcast i've got some feedback but i'm going to leave all the feedback to next time because I'm running a bit late with this one. We've been out doing stuff and having a good time. But anyway, again, I would like to thank all the Patreon subscribers for helping out with the podcast. I'd like to um, thank everybody who's offered feedback. Everybody, whether it's through Facebook or through emails or through Twitter or whatever part, whatever way you give feedback, I really appreciate that I'm getting it and it does keep me going with the podcast as much as the financial stuff does so anyway you guys take care of yourselves i will be back very soon with another martian driving podcast then with a paleo cinema podcast i've now got a good solid list of movies to do for both podcasts so that part of the creative process which is what the fuck am i going to do next is less of a burden at the moment because a lot of good stuff's come up and i really want to talk about and I find that really cool. Uh, I am doing Local Hero, and for one of our particular subscribers who reminded me on Twitter about it, next couple of podcasts I'm doing Local Hero with Capaldi and Burt Lancaster and all of that ensemble cast of wonderful people, but not this time around. But anyway, take care of yourselves. Keep watching good movies. Keep watching bad movies. Um, just look after yourselves out there, and as usual, here are the credits to the podcast in the style of movie credits. I'll see you guys soon with more movie stuff. But first, I promised you another song from And God Created Woman, and you thought that I forgot, which I actually did. This one's called Dis-moi quel chose le gentil, which means show me something tender. And it's from And God Created Woman. Anyway, I'll catch you guys later. We're going to have the song, then the credits. Quelque chose de gentil, chérie. Prends-moi dans tes bras, embrasse-moi et souris. Dis-moi que tu m'aimes, pense-le quand tu le dis, car je veux que tes yeux me la aussi. Ta joue sur ma joue. Parle-moi tout bas Ta main caressant mes cheveux Je sais bien qu'à ce jeu Tu peux
que peut rendre et mon cœur et ma vie Me dis-moi quelque chose de gentil Que le son de ta voix dans la nuit Dansons tous les deux Bercés par tes mots d'amour Lentement et encore et toujours Toujours Tais-toi maintenant Ne dis rien, plus rien Donne-moi ce bonheur infini Silencieusement Nous ferons de cet instant béni Bien mieux que Quelque chose de surrounded by 18 million blacks. Listen, we built this country, every town, every factory, every farm, mine and Christian church, and I protect it. And that's the way it's going to stay, because no Zulu 20 years out of a tree is ever going to shove 50 cents in my hand and tell me there's a freighter in Cape Town Harbour waiting to ship me out of the land I built. All righty? Take your girlie to the movies if you can't make love at home. There's no little brother there who always squeals You can do an awful lot in seven reels 